0: conversations about social justice and social change these days. We talk about a lot about listening, how to be a good listener, how to ask the right questions. What I love about this episode where I'm chatting with Dr. Twondalen Reese, who's curator of music and performing arts at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of African American History and Culture, is that we talk about listening through the lens of the history of music and social justice. Uh, Dwan shares great insights about what it means to be a good mentor and a good mentee. And I'm delighted to share this conversation with you. You are listening to the Hikma Collective Podcast, and I am Eric Makalak, founder of Hikma. Thank you for joining us. Well, hi, Dwan. It's really nice to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Um, I'll I'll give you a little bit of the background on um, our last conversation just to refresh you on where we left off. Um, so back in October, you very kindly sat down with me in your offices at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, and we talked a lot about um Your career journey and the book that you're writing and what we're trying to achieve at HICPA in terms of building a learning community that at the time I called a watering hole for the Mavericks of which I um you know cheekily think you are maybe one um and so I was so excited when you agreed to be on our podcast because I think your perspective on how ideas flow across contexts is really fascinating. And I I just appreciate you being here today.
1: Well, I'm happy to be here and continue the conversation.
0: Yeah, same. So I know that one of the things on your plate right now is that you have your book coming out, um, Musical Crossroads, Stories Behind the Objects of African-American Music. Um, Will you tell us a little bit more about your book?
1: Sure. The museum has its own publication program. We've put out um, several books, you know, since the opening of the museum. And I was asked, we have this photography series, Double Exposure. So there's usually photographs on a certain theme and we do these small books. I was approached about doing something on music and um, I was very keen to do that. But I was also thinking, what could I do that's a little different Mm -hmm. um, in, in putting something together? Because to me, the stories are the most important thing. Um, the magic with the objects is really um, engaging with them, tearing the you know, pulling out the stories behind them, who made them, who used them, how has their how has their meaning changed over time, all kinds of things. And so I wanted it to be a little something more robust. And so I asked, instead of just doing photographs, could we do a book on music about the objects of music? which is my passion as a curator and uh, my passion for my my love of music and how to dig deep into it. So it it took about seven years to, uh, not totally right, you know, you have your day-to-day responsibilities and everything else going on. So you find a little time here and a little time there. But um, it was really an opportunity to kind of talk about what makes me passionate about museum work Mm -hmm. and what makes me passionate about music. Mm. Um, I love music. I'm a singer. Um, Mm. you know, that's just one level of it though, because it's been an entree for me to the rest of the world about learning about myself, about learning about society, culture, history, politics, you name it. And so that lens, it, it is the reason for me why music is a universal language, because it it teaches us anything we want to be taught. And that richness that 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 just energy from looking at an object and thinking about it in multiple ways really excites me, and I wanted to excite other people and also talk about using objects um, for music research, material culture, as we call it. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is common in history, archaeology, using objects in, in museum studies to use objects to talk about other stories in history. But mm-hmm. there really hasn't been a material culture of music per se.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: the easiest thing when you work with music, you can work with scores, you can work with correspondence or images, but they're usually to illustrate something. Mm -hmm. they're not the object the focal the primary source in and of itself and so the goal of that was to get people excited about objects but also to see a new a new way to think about music to think about music in an expansive way beyond the performer and audience music as a culture of community building music as a culture of, of protest of identity formation of um, uplift, all kinds of things that when you really think about it, a musical story is more than you know, just a record. It's it's an assemblage. I see these multiple circles just circling around and intersecting all over the place, how music activates in community. So there there turned out to be multiple goals, so to speak.
0: It sounds like a, a really rich and complex project. Can you give us an example of one of the objects that you talked about and the story behind it?
1: Oh sure. Um, um let me pull something out. There's so many. There's so many. I hate to I'm trying to pick the right one. Oh, okay. Here's here's one. There is uh Nina Simone, mm. great singer. Um nineteen oh uh, sixty three or sixty-four. She recorded a song called Mississippi, Goddamn.
2: Mm.
1: And um, it was a response to after the, the burning of the 16th Street Baptist Church and her anger and fury about um, having to write that song. And at that time, you know, when she performed it on The Tonight Show, it's really the lyrics and the music are... Quite diametrically opposed. It it sounds like this jaunty vaudeville tune, you know. And and then she had these this searing language, you know, Mississippi, goddamn, you know, no more segregation, take it slow. No, we're not going to do that. So that that pointed language. um, We have a promo copy of the the forty five, and so. You can talk about the promo copy. Said, oh, yes, this belonged to Nina Simone, and people would be fascinated with it. But mm-hmm. if you start to look at the story behind it and what we juxtaposed this one with were some glass shards that um, a woman, Joan Maholland, collected from the 16th Street Baptist Church after the bombing. So we juxtaposed those two things to really talk about not only Nina Simone, but her voice as... A singer, uh, a female singer, really pointed language in 1963, really totally unheard of Mm -hmm. um, to have such steering uh, um, comments about the state of the world, but to be performed on a mainstream stage, so to speak. Mm
2: -hmm. And so
1: how these objects, how that disparate 45 connects to these shards of glass, which are in um, our segregation exhibit Um, So they're they're totally separate, but really totally connected. So we get behind Mm -hmm. the stories about that. So it's there are multiple stories about Nina, the civil rights movement, music, composition, um, the critical moment, a woman collecting shards, an activist herself. She was a white woman who went with the freedom ride. So you see how the stories can just kind of, there's a chain that just goes further and further out. Um, that's, that's what excites me. So that's, that's one particular story that I we like to talk about.
0: Would you tell us a little bit more about your story and how you, how you got to where you are?
1: Sure. Um, I think there are a couple serendipitous moments, um, about how I forged my career, what I, I really ended up doing. I had always been interested in music and I'd always been interested in history, American history. Um, I, in college, I I took a course, I was trying to decide if I was gonna do American studies and music, you know, which I wanted to major and I ended up doing both. But I took a course with two professors called um, Vienna, Music Mirror of Society. And it, uh, in classical music, you, you you learn about the composers, the great works, the theory behind it, the musicology and everything like that. But in this course, we looked at Beethoven, Haydn, Schubert, and Mozart from a social and cultural context and the communities in the world in which they served. And that was eye-opening to me because I hadn't seen that done with classical music there seems to be more of a natural affinity to do that with American music, but there was, there's something, there was something exciting about that that just really opened a door for me. And I got really, really jazzed, so to speak, Mm -hmm. um, about the class and having that kind of lens, because it helped me as a singer to learn so much more about what was going on in the time or what was going on personally in their lives, uh, you know, the commissions they had, and all of that stuff, it just brought another lens to the music itself and just really enriched my experience with it. And um i I went straight to graduate school after uh, I graduated, uh, went to the University of Michigan, um, still interested in American culture and pursuing music. I what i I learned at the time, I got a little disenchanted with, all this great learning, I have a love of learning and all these great discussions and, and theories and and how it stays within the academy, how there's scholars just speaking to one another. And I've always had kind of a democratic outlook that I think stuff needs to be shared with people. And um, I remember just kind of feeling that, that little twinge inside my first couple of years of graduate school but um, luck would have it, Michigan had a museum practice program mm-hmm. and um, on a lark I applied. You know, I thought museums, they serve general audiences and maybe this would be a creative way to do work and to reach as many people as possible and not on a hierarchy that you have to be a scholar to understand this. How How can I take this thinking, this knowledge, this excitement and, and make it accessible to general audiences. And that's where the real change, not that there's not real change in other areas, but sure. that's where you can see some kind of, it's not immediate feedback, slow feedback, and that the more people learn, the more aware they are. So that was what, where it really came together for me um i I didn't know exactly what I was going to do in museums i just i I just kind of went with my passions and what really rang mm-hmm. true to me um, and my career took you know music was always music and theater, and the arts were always the first love, the driving thing. I did an internship here at the smithsonian
2: mm-hmm.
1: um one at the portrait gallery and education department and then one at um, the american history museum working with my mentor john hassey who's a curator emeritus now from american history um had the honor to work with the duke ellington collection when it was first acquired just Mm -hmm. going through boxes and just it was a magical experience for me there there's something i find really telling in an object. I can stand in a place and just try to imagine the history or the people that have been touched by it Mm -hmm. and what it was like then and what I'm supposed to think about it. Um, And I also found objects as a way to, because interpreting in the way that I like to interpret them, is very inclusive. You know, there's no one privileged story. I I think when we talk about the arts, sometimes we're always talking about the great auteurs and the great artists. And, you know, it's just by happenstance that we know about the people we know about because they're the most written about. They're talented people. Music operates in all sections of society. And you know, the important thing in our museum is talking about music. It is not a hall of fame. It's really looking at the role of music and African American experience.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: those are two very, very different things. Um, and, and I'm I'm leaning toward the whole experience, the the full experience that we can have with music and the stories that it tells. So once again it kind of fit my democratic impulse again, that mm-hmm. I'm inclusive and representative and telling the stories that don't get to be told and also telling them in creative ways that reach people mm-hmm. um, that can reach people without them knowing that they're being rich re- reached little subterfuge too. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you hit people over the head with something or get them to think about something differently? Yeah, And I think exhibits and music can do that quite a bit. I agree. And I,
0: I'm curious to hear more about um, one of the threads you pulled there, which is this idea of getting feedback on whether the things that you're doing are working and how they're being received. Could you say a little bit more about the feedback that you get working in a museum and, and how you know whether the things that you're doing are reaching the people you want to reach?
1: That is an age old question in the humanities. How do you know what you're doing has an impact? Yeah. And it's more than just the numbers game. I, I think the best thing when I talk about feedback, you know, so much of this job is also interpersonal relationships and dealing mm-hmm. with people and their stories and treating them as they're real and, and sacred, so to speak. And I, I'd have to say the, the, best part is, is, is meeting people and working with people and and being partners with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody wants to be heard. They have a story to tell and how I tell if I'm getting right is if I have a conversation with someone and, you know, it might be the smallest thing to me. It might be a mention in a digital interactive in one part of the exhibition. But how gratified people feel to be recognized and heard and placed into the larger dialogue. Um, I know sometimes by the conversations I hear. You know, when you deal with a museum exhibit, you spend all this time designing it, curating it, writing all the label text, and, you know, the average visitor. may not read everything or get everything, but it in the tours and the times I spend in the gallery, I I I listen. I listen to the conversations among people, among family members. Um I I take pride in their excitement.
2: Mm-hmm. I take
1: pride in, you know, someone telling something. Do, do you know who do you know the mothership? Let me tell you all about this. <laughs> um there are times where people can zero in and just what I'm trying to get across. Um, so much of our storytelling, I want people to think about music when they think about regional differences. I want them to think about racism and how that really impacted the the large scale of things, community building, um, religion, spirituality. All of those things uh, are just more, you know, they're all part of what music is about, what that one song, what that one piece, whatever you might be listening to. And so that's very intentional in the storytelling. And, you know, when someone gets even just a thread of that, I'm gratified. Mm -hmm. I'm wholly gratified because I, I, I wrote something or said something that resonated with them. And that's all I need to feel like I'm making a difference.
0: And do you feel heard?
1: Quite honestly, I think I struggle to be heard. I'm more gratified at this point in my career than I am and more comfortable about pushing dominant narratives because I think what I've learned, particularly in this job, that there are other voices similar to mine and there is not space to acknowledge them because there are certain narratives that have to be pushed forward to to, um, achieve a certain goal. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. One of the, when we talk about African-American music or black music, a lot of it is just talked in terms of resistance, the resistance narrative of protests and social protests. That's very important, but it's not in in and all of what everyone thinks and does with their musical careers or lives. And so, you know, in some in one section, it's a takeoff of a, a song. Oh, God, I'm, I'm messing it up right now. What it means to be free, something like that. It was written by Billy Taylor but I think about freedom in a much more expansive way that it is not about the civil rights movement or the abolition of slavery. Um, True is freedom, you know, any one of us might want is to be ourselves Mm
2: -hmm. in
1: any way possible and not be judged or pigeonholed into having to be some way. Now, you know why there's certain imperatives because there's a long history of systemic racism um, systemic oppression of people of color, uh, homophobia, all of those kinds of things. But in the in the final end, I, I think we want to be ourselves, and being ourselves, it's it's our choice who we want to be. And I don't think our our likes or our loves of our music or who we like. And I, I struggled with this as a child. Um, it shouldn't be dictated to us
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so I'm all about that freedom of expression and that it is all worthwhile and, and so par- part of that the book ended up actually serving multiple missions for me in getting my voice out and in addition to talking about the objects themselves mm-hmm.
0: and do you have a favorite song
1: Ooh, <laughs> bad question. Bad question. I have lots of favorite songs. Um, that's a really a hard question. Because then you're asking me, or I might feel like you're asking me, you know, what's your favorite genre? And and I'm not going to say that either. Why um, is it such a
0: hard question? What's the, tell? tell us about the challenge
1: one song speaking for everything that you are uh-huh. and it's not the challenge with me it's more the projection um, there's this book I read last year Nina Edgheim the, the Race of Sound I've got it on my bookshelf but this is something I struggled with um, as a child because I I didn't have a voice that sounded black Hmm and i was um criticized and made fun about that or about my musical choices and that's more about someone else than it is about me but it still has an impact and so i i i i kind of get a little not uptight but you're trying to pick one thing
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and assuming somebody's gonna let that one song speak for everything that I love. And I don't know if there is one song that could, there's certain songs I like a turn of a phrase or a harmonic progression, um, a sound of, of, of a voice, you know, mm-hmm. certain voices. I think right now I'm, I'm excited about watching the Roberta Flack documentary, uh, Killing Me Softly, is one mm-hmm. of my favorite songs, but also how her voice is so distinct.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, draws me in. Um, there are a lot of, um, I, I have a strong affinity for vocalists, female vocalists.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Ella Fitzgerald, Joan Baez, Janice mm-hmm. Ian. Mm-hmm. Um, take And Ethel Waters, of course, my dissertation topic. Mm. So, uh, but lots of, the, Eva Cassidy, um, Dionne Warwick. Um, I like singer songwriter types,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: um, and they're different songs for different things.
0: Totally. So, who are the audiences for your book? Who do you feel you're speaking to?
1: I'm speaking to, I'm speaking to the general reader who loves music, um, loves African American culture. I'm also speaking to. The serious researcher or the lay researcher who, collectors, you know, anybody, we all save something for some reason or another. Why are we saving it? And what does it tell us? Mm. You know, it's an exercise in that. I'm speaking to musicologists and ethnomusicologists about their own scholarship. Um, What new avenues does working with material culture open? Mm. Or what questions could we ask? You know, how can we um, open the floodgates of of having different voices inform the research we've already done? I believe that the material culture really lends itself well to that. So it's kind of convincing that community, too, because there hasn't been a lot of work in that area. So for me, it's like anything I write. I want it to be for multiple audiences. I want them to see them to get passionate about it, to see how it might relate to their own life, their own collections, whether it's music or not. Um, To think about their own things that they treasure and why they treasure them. Um, Educators, I also think about, uh, particularly K through 12 education and Mm -hmm. using music to teach other topics. Uh, I, I think this is an excellent way to reach children and high schoolers, junior high schoolers. Uh, so I, I have a broad audience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm hoping we'll take pleasure in the story.
0: And how do you strike a balance writing for all of those different audiences at once?
1: It's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a challenge I like. And I I see myself doing that with everything I've done, um, working in the public sector, so to speak, is how to distill some of these can sometimes erudite theoretical ideas but to an essence that it's in plain language. And Mm -hmm. I think there's an art to that. It's not Mm -hmm. always easy. I think the book is structured. Um, I do all the main essays and that's kind of the the half the theoretical framing a little bit. And then um, there are a lot of stories and profiles and had a team of my colleagues who helped with, with writing a lot of those but um it is a balance and and language use and choice all of that is is um it is a balance in everything we do um particularly for the museum because we're reaching so many audiences and you have to speak to so many people at one time through one text or one blog or one one label mhm
0: in Canada, they they have this term that's really common. Um, most federal grants have a, a module or a section that applicants have to fill out. It's called the knowledge mobilization section. And so knowledge mobilization is emerging as this term to refer to the work that scholars do to make their research accessible and useful. Um, and I wonder for you, are there examples of scholars doing that that you can point to that you thought were really effective.
1: For me, and when I talk to people, if you're going to do public-facing work, I want you to do it for the right reasons.
2: Mm. Because
1: you want to engage with the public, not because you want to publicize yourself. Mm -hmm. I I believe, and I, I I have a lot of students who come and talk to me, that I can quite honestly say that what I did was intentional. I wanted to work with public audiences. It wasn't a fallback. It wasn't all academic. I I thrive on engaging with public audiences. And it deserves no less than that. You You want to be in this field. It's not an alternative to... Do the same thing you might do as a university professor, you really have to have an orientation and intention to deal with um, working in community. I mean, as scholars, you work by yourselves, you teach your classes, you write your grants, you're kind of an independent producer. Um, Mm -hmm. In the public sector, you have obligations to other people besides yourself not only your colleagues or to your funders, but to the people you actually work there. And what you're doing has real life consequences to them. It can change lives and it does change lives. And if you don't value that and see that as the impetus for doing your kind of work, I think you're better placed elsewhere. It's it's not about publicity. It's not about making a name for yourself. It's about an intention of seeing your scholarship out there, not for the glorification of you as a scholar, but for the good of the community.
0: And do you think that every scholar within the academy should be doing public facing work?
1: I do. Hmm. I think um, universities are parts of their community. I think the efficacy and the, the resources they pour into professors that it as a community service, they should not only serve their students, but also outside the community. And that's where you're going to see, you know, you just get a small fraction when you're working within the classroom. And in fact, it's quite prudent, you know, knowing graduate education as we know today and the number of uh, tenure track jobs, it's a way to prepare students to apply their work in other ways. And it's a way to make mm-hmm. their work useful. Yeah, um, It's a no brainer to me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but uh, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult road to hoe because it really needs to come from the top down.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, tenure
1: track, tenure dossiers and all of that kind of stuff, they don't reward public facing work at the same levels they do um, writing a monograph or a journal article or teaching a class and so there's there's a strong steep learning curve not only to professors and you know their academic societies I'm a part of and talking about public facing work but to really elevate it and not see it as lesser than mm-hmm. and that's my other soapbox I've lots of soapboxes <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm I'm we're here to talk about any and all soapboxes <laughs> that you would like to talk about um one of the Challenges that we see come up, because at Higma, a lot of what we do on the consulting side is working with scholars who would like to do that public-facing work and are trying to, they're seeking funding for it, they're seeking strategies for it, they want someone in the room to help them facilitate dialogues with their community partners in a way that um, helps them get on the same page. And one of the things that really comes through in the different folks that we work with is that not everybody has the same instincts. Not everybody has the same intuitive skills to build those relationships and and do that work. Do you have any ideas for how to balance that? How to how to make it possible for scholars who don't have the instincts or the experience in partnership development to to do that work responsibly?
2: Wow.
1: Um a lot of it's training. I mean, I think it's instincts, intuitiveness. You know, you're, you're more inclined for certain professions. There, there are a couple of things there I think about. One is, um, you know, programs do not give experiences where you can get that kind of instinct. I think mm-hmm. the best thing I did, what was great about my museum practice program, it was all learning by doing.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It, It wasn't, yeah, we had reading, we had classes, but we were doing all the way through the program. And I can't tell you enough how actually being out there and listening and observing and trying to understand how things work and where people come from, how valuable to me that has been as a knowledge base and developing my own skills and perfecting my own skills.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And you have to have that level of, you also have to have a level of self-awareness about your placement, particularly working with communities in relation to them and be very clear about who you are and what you're bringing and what blinders you may be bringing or, or attitudes, but also to look at where they are and what they're bringing and, and where the commonality stands
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, there there's a lot of emotional intelligence to this work
2: mm-hmm. to
1: do it right um to not come on as as someone who's taking over or, or speaking for someone else or appropriating someone else's culture and um i I think a lot of that is in the preparation you know' I, If I had my druthers, there would be programs, graduate programs that built some of these kind of skills that you could probably use in the academy or outside the academy. Mm -hmm. But I think a successful person, whatever route you choose, needs to have that level of self-awareness and self-reflexivity to um, see where you're positioned in the greater scheme of things.
2: Mm.
1: Um, But there's, there's nothing... Better about listening and understanding and understanding your vantage point versus someone else's Um, and not coming off as an expert know-it-all. One of the things I think is true about music and I like is that I may be a curator, I may have a PhD, I may have all these things, but there's someone out there who knows more than I do. There are quite a lot of people who know more than I do. And I am always willing to learn. Mm -hmm. I'm open to that all the time.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: I don't present myself as knowing everything. I know what I know. I can put together things. I can interpret things. Mm -hmm. But I I will learn from every person that I encounter.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You mentioned a number of times the importance of being a good listener which I find especially interesting coming from someone who listens to music in so many dimensions. Um, what are the qualities of a good listener?
1: Um, not talking so much. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, and it sounds tongue in, tongue in cheek, but um, you don't have to be the expert in the room. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like to hear myself talk ad nauseum. I I draw people, I try to draw people out and hear what they're saying. You also, in listening, you, you listen for what you don't hear
2: mm-hmm.
1: and what you don't hear or see. Um, a listener also asks good probing questions or leading questions. A listener knows where to stop. Or maybe redirect.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Someone may not want to talk about something. But you also listen for the things that keep coming up. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And perhaps there's something you want to listen there. Um, Can you listen to really... I don't know. This thought just crossed my mind last week. I was just writing something. But you listen beyond what you can hear.
2: Mm. And I've been playing
1: around. I've been playing around with it, that because listening beyond what you what you can hear is actually going beyond what is actually being uttered at that moment. And to me that's like delving deep with an object, it's going it's it's learning beyond that one encounter. It is going back and doing your reading, it's going back and doing your research or talking to other people in the community. There's there's more to it than just that one exchange. And that's how, you know, sometimes we can run the risk of being arrogant and of our own self-importance of what we're doing. But if you haven't done your homework and you don't go do your homework when someone has directed you to,
2: mm.
1: then you're really, you're really not all in and you're not on board with really having a fair and equal exchange with somebody.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I I feel that very strongly.
0: Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing, you tell me this is fair, is that a piece of it is being able to step back, ask the right questions, let the conversation go where it needs to go. And a piece of it is committing up front to the follow through.
1: Absolutely. And it's not, none of this is transactional. Mm -hmm. These are, You know, it may turn out to be transactional, but these are relationship-building exercises, encounters when working with people, with dealing with their stories, when collecting their objects. I never see it as a transaction. I never Mm -hmm. want to see it as a transaction. You know, sometimes I may never talk to that person again, but it is a lived experience that I carry with me in the next exchange or in my mental notebook about what it meant to work with this person, to work alongside this person, to tell the story or to go over this important history or to share this this common interest.
0: Mm. Well, thank you so much, Duan. It's been a privilege to have you and really appreciate your time.
1: Well, thanks for letting me do this. This was fun. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Hikma
0: Collective podcast. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, founder of Hikma. The production of this episode was led by Sophia Van hees in collaboration with Smangele Madena, Euphemia Valdesare, Ai Nicole Markland, and Deshara Green. Matthew Tompkinson composed the original music you hear now in his capacity as the 2022 Hikma Artist-in-Residence. This podcast has been made possible with generous support from Innovate BC, Tech Nation, the Information and Communications Technology Council, the Canada Digital Adoption Program, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You can find show notes, links, and transcripts at www.hikma.studio/podcast. Hikma is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Hunkpam speaking Musqueam people. We are grateful to be here and to share this space with you. Our speakers, team members, and listeners are based all over the world, and wherever you're listening, we encourage you to learn more about whose land you're on.